sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Am I the only one who thinks this is totally insane? Rob, we're fighting theological injustice here. They're not using just weights and measures. He said we have 50 listeners. I think he's being generous. Rage of Bible is interpreted by experts. Rob, are you as shocked as I am? It's nonsense. If you've given any money to this, you need to complain. You ask for your money back. I don't know about you, but I find this annoying. Uh, what up and shalom. Welcome to The Rob and Caleb Show. The show where theology matters and scholarship counts. My name is Caleb Hegg. And with me today... I'm Michael Gonzalez. What up, Mike? How's it going, brother? Hey, it's going pretty good. I'm glad to be able to fill in for Prof Hoff. The Hoff? Yes. Uh, Rob Van Hoff got so offended by everyone downing him yesterday that he left. No, I'm playing. <laughs> that's, that's not what happened at all. Yeah, it was a tough day yesterday. <laughs> it was. Uh, no, uh, Rob is uh, going with his wife to, uh, uh, I don't know, pick up a dog? I think. Yeah, I think they're going to Vantage to pick up a dog. Which Vantage is uh, right by the Gorge Amphitheater in Washington State. It's about halfway in between here and Spokane. It is absolutely gorgeous. Anyway, so I hope that they have fun doing that. And uh, filling in for us, of course, is Mr. Gonzalez, who happens to be a new member of the team here at Tor Resource. So happy to have you. Welcome. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks. Um, okay, so and the chat room has already uh, started renaming the show to, uh, to different things. Anyway, okay, so um, <laughs> before we even get started, I want to read this because this will play into basically uh, whatever we decide to talk about next. Uh, this was a comment on our last show on Vimeo. Now, I don't know who this person is. I don't really care. Uh, they say, novices of the faith is what this video has in it. Caleb Haig is a bully, and this video is nothing more then in another attempt by Tor Resource to bully other HRM, I think Hebrew Roots Messianics, maybe, leaders. Uh, the first five minutes of this is just them playing around with sound effects. Um, well, that's true. Um, how does this further the kingdom? Rabbi Shapira has uh, been booted from the IAMCS. I did not know that. He has been exposed long before you came along. It is beating a dead horse a year after he was brought before the elders. Who cares anymore? This was 40 minutes wasted. Nothing about the Omer. Okay, we started talking about the Omer at 45 minutes. So I'm going to go backwards on this. Um, who cares anymore? Because they say uh, they say it's beating a dead horse because uh, Shapiro was booted from the IAMCS, which I didn't know, a year ago. Well, you're going to really think that this is uh, beating a dead horse uh, because today we're going to be talking about uh, Sola Scriptura, which uh, has been talked about for 600 years. So I can't believe we already discussed this. So, and the other point is, is that the first five minutes of, of uh, uh, sound effects, I, you know, this whole thing with Rico Cortez and all of his uh, very loyal followers. <laughs> <laughs> along with Itzhak Shapir and all his very loyal followers, have has made me realize one thing. People do not understand what we're trying to do here on The Robin Caleb Show. They just don't get it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, 
you know, people can't take uh, criticism, and, and uh, at least that's what it seems like. When people put out a teaching, they don't expect anyone to say anything about it. They just want to put it out and not be questioned and, uh, and just be taken at their word. Yeah, well, it's not just that. This show is, is like what I wanted to do when I started thinking about creating this show with Rob was I wanted to talk about messianic apologetics. In other words, what do we see going on in the movement and what we see? Is it right or is it wrong? And what, how, do we, how does it compare to the Bible? So that's number one. Number two is is that Rob and I decided that there's not enough like humor and laughter in the messianic movement. So, you know, I've since I was ten years old, I've always wanted to be a radio, uh, you know, host a radio show, and uh, podcasting is obviously a lowly second, but uh, nonetheless, it's uh, it, it basically fills the the want that I had, and so right. that's that's why we have uh, you know things like uh, like sound effects and. All sorts of good stuff is because basically, you know, I'm trying to reproduce some form of a radio show. Oh, sure. It makes things a little bit more lighthearted and uh, more, in my opinion, easier to uh, to listen to when there's a uh, we can joke. You know, we can ha- we can have fun. It doesn't have to be so uh, so dry. I, t- I was listening to I don't remember what pod. It was like a radio. I, it was a radio station, I guess. It was some messianic radio station. And these t- <laughs> I'm not trying to down anyone, but these two ladies got on and they were just like, have you ever seen that SNL sketch? Where it's like uh, the two ladies on the radio, and they're like, "Oh yes, uh, you know, today on anyway." It's like just public, like, like public yeah, radio show. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was like. Except for these two ladies got on, and they were like, "Okay, well, let's talk about uh, James one four today." And it was just like, "Dude, are you serious? Come on, you know, like liven up a little <laughs> bit. Let's have a little fun." Actually, Rob and I, or, uh, Rob and I, Mike and I, before we came on, we were talking about making the, like how easy it would be to make this into a call-in show. With the technology, the technology's there, right? That would liven it up, yeah. <laughs> liven it up, yeah. <laughs> it would be. I have a feeling it would be a slaughterhouse. Uh, I, I feel like a lot of I'm, now. Here's the thing: is that we already have the technology to make this show a call-in show where we, where Mike or somebody else could screen all the calls and then send them to us. We would be able to see who was in the queue. We could choose who we wanted to pick next. All those kind of stuff. So I mean, it's it's really. It's really easy to do, and we already have all the technology. All I need is a, a small little adapter, and it would be done. And if people think they're getting offended now with a call-in show, yeah, the, the offense uh, would be uh, <laughs> doubled immediate. <laughs> <laughs> but at least people would be able to, you know, like call up and air their grievances. Yeah, maybe that's not what we want. Yeah, we want a discussion. We want to talk about it. I, I feel like there would be a lot of yelling from people at yeah. us. <laughs> And now, you know, going back to what you said about um, uh, being a show on apologetics, I mean, it's a biblical principle that iron sharpens iron, and that's not a uh, an easy process. That's not like a smooth and uh, easygoing process. It's a lot of banging, and there's some heat, and uh, that's that's what happens when we uh, when we challenge each other in the you know the teachings and things that we're saying. No doubt. Okay, so now that we have uh, spent the first five minutes. Uh, with sound effects and talking about nonsense. Let's get an idea of who Michael is. So, Mike, you came from, well, originally Texas, into Colorado. Tell us about yourself. Tell us where you came from. And now, hang on. I got another sound effect first. You came out of Catholicism. I'm a Catholic, which is the best of all the religions, really, because we have the most rules and the best clothes. So tell us about that, too. <laughs> yeah, I was uh, I was brought up uh, Roman Catholic. I... Uh, 
Uh, went to a Catholic school from uh, kindergarten to eighth grade and uh, went to catechism and uh, was was immersed in Catholicism. I was an altar boy. Actually, I was an altar boy uh, longer than, than most of the of the kids in our community because uh, uh, I think you had to be 10 years old in order to get in. And since my brother was older than me, my mom snuck me in with him. So I was <laughs> in there much earlier than the other guys. And then I, I served much later than anyone else, too, because we lived only a couple blocks away from the church. And so whenever the priest needed an altar boy, he would call me up. And this was up until I was like maybe a sophomore in high school. I was like a grown man up there serving as, a, as an altar boy. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I, I describe myself uh, as, you know, looking back, I was a, a pretty arrogant Catholic, a lot like that clip that you just played. I used to think that uh, Catholicism, um, you know, as being a Catholic, you were a real Christian. And anyone under, under that was like a sub-Christian. And uh, so when uh, it got to the point to where my wife and I wanted to look for, um, well, we were getting out of the Catholic Church for various reasons, um, I didn't want to look at any Christian denominations because I I knew that Christianity, you know, came out of Catholicism. And so I didn't want to look at uh, any, you know, pro- Protestant uh, groups because I thought they're just sub-Catholics and they're not even, you know, doing it doing it the right way. Um but uh, it came to a point to where, where my wife and I, we did realize that uh, the, the Catholic Church wasn't, uh, wasn't where it was at. And I won't get into those details right now. But um, when we started to look, uh, actually, this was back in Texas. Right before we looked, we actually moved to Denver, Colorado. And then uh, in Colorado is when I uh, found another Catholic Church that uh, things fell apart there. And uh, when I went away on a, on a business trip, my wife found a messianic congregation, and they welcomed her in, and uh, they, you know, um, actually led her to the Lord uh, there at this community. And so when I got back from the business trip, everything was changed. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I told her, I said, okay, let's start looking for the truth. I wanted to go uh, Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, I- uh, you know, Islam. I wanted to go and look at any other religion except, you know, Catholic or Christian. Uh, religions because I thought, you know, we needed to find the truth somewhere else. And so she said, well, I found this place and it's Jewish. And I said, wow, Judaism, I didn't, you know, it's one ism I hadn't thought about. And so we went to to this Messianic congregation and uh, the pastor taught Jesus out of the Old Testament. I had never heard that before. Well, growing up Catholic, you don't really even hear uh, Bible teachings. You only hear the, the liturgy and maybe a short a really short homily, a, a short uh, application, uh, maybe ten minutes uh, in the in the services. And so when I heard this, I mean, it literally brought me to my knees. And I, I, I right after the service, I went up to the pastor and told him, I said, "This is incredible. I never heard the Bible taught like this before." And we went there for nine years. Um, I, I say that that first year, this was in uh, January of of two thousand. I'm sorry, March of two thousand. And that whole year was kind of like a, uh, an onion, layers and layers of, of truth being, uh, being revealed and lies being, being taken away, my understanding of, of, of the Bible or lack of understanding of the Bible. And so that whole uh, year uh, was just, we just sat there and we just learned and we just uh, absorbed everything that, that we possibly could. <clears throat> and um, at the end of that year, that's when I say I, I accepted the Lord. I, I don't think that for me there was a, a single day. Well, well, you know, even even being brought up Catholic, I always knew about Jesus. I always knew about God. 
I just didn't know I was supposed to change my life and live uh, <laughs> like a disciple all the time. I mean, really, I, I thought I found a loophole in the, Christ, in the Catholic Church where I could live like a heathen. And as long as I went to confession and then received communion, and man, I was good. In fact, we live near the Southwestern Theological Seminary there in Fort Worth. It's a, it's a Baptist, Southern Baptist uh, seminary. And we always had um, students come, in, come by and pick us up and take us to their house and show us Jesus movies. Nowadays, I, you know, parents probably wouldn't allow people to do that. But, but these guys would come and they'd pick us up, take us to their home, show us these little Jesus films and give us cookies and punch and then try and get us saved. And uh, I remember when they would ask me, are you saved? My answer was always, I'm Catholic. Which, of course. It, yeah. Of course, I'm Catholic. It meant I'm in. You know, I, I was baptized. I'm, I, I'm in. You know, so you, don't, you ain't got to try and save me. And um, That's almost like, it's almost, that re, sorry for interrupting, but it reminds uh-huh. me of like the first century, like, oh, I'm Jewish. I'm in. You know, it's like almost like what Paul was fighting in the first century. Exactly. And that's, and that's why I could really relate to... Um, you know, this, this discussion we're going to bring up here in a minute, the Sola Scriptura. But, um, and so when I accepted uh, uh, Yeshua and I realized that I was supposed to change, that year in two th- uh, the year of 2000 was that changing point in my life. Um, I remember by the end of the year, I realized, okay, I got to, I got to make some changes in my life. And, and, uh, and uh, I did, I mean, drastically. I think the people that I moved out to Colorado with a group of about maybe three or four families and some single people. We all worked together and we all moved to go join a company together. And uh, and they could tell you if you talk to those guys if they described the kind of, uh, the kind of person I was before, you'd be talking about a totally different person because um, I, I I was I was changed and uh, I took it seriously after that my my walk with Messiah and walking in Torah. So then the next year in two thousand and one. We started to lead a small group in our um, uh, in, in our house, and we did that for four years. Every Wednesday, starting at about six o'clock, and it going on till um, the wee hours of the night, just fellowship and and worship and, uh, and and in the Bible. And that's and that's having a small group helped me to be in the Word because I had to prepare a, a little teaching, you know, for our group, and so that that helped me um, cause me to to, to grow. And then a, a few years later, uh, the pastors asked me uh, there at the community that I was at, they asked me to um, be the youth director, to start a youth group. And I thought, well, okay, if my kids are going to be part of this, I want to shape it and make it, you know, and, uh, you know, make it the way that, that it needs to be. And so the more I researched youth groups, the more I realized, I don't know if I want to, if I want to do youth groups, <laughs> you know, maybe that could be a topic for another time. But, um, but then shortly after that, I did that for two years. I tried to get this youth group going. Shortly after that, we uh, they asked me to be a, a pastor on staff because one of the pastors was leaving, and uh, I thought, "Wow, that's a that's a heavy load." But uh, I'm, I was up for the challenge, and I, and uh, I accepted the position. And then once I got in there, I started to wonder, "What does the Bible say about pastors? What does the Bible say about my responsibilities?" And uh, so I started to look to look into. Uh, in, in, into the Bible and find out, like, what was the job description for this? And what I realized was, when we came out of Catholicism, you know, we had examined our diet, you know, and then we started eating kosher. We started examining uh, the days of worship. You know, we went from Sunday to Saturday to the Sabbath. 
we started examining uh, uh, festival days. You know, the, the the whole Catholic days that the the Catholic Church uh, would celebrate Christmas and Easter and those those kinds of things. And we went to you know Passover and Shavuot and uh, Sukkot and and the biblical festivals. And it's kind of like we stop there. But once I came into the leadership of a community, I realized we needed to ask more questions and, and find out how our community is established, how our community is set up based on the Bible, and what does that look like? And so as I began to challenge, you know, the idea of senior pastors and pastors in general, you know, we, we don't see pastors in, in the Bible. We see elders or overseers and, and deacons. Um, I started to, you know, I think I started to rub the, uh, the leadership the, the wrong way. <laughs> and I, I was I was a pastor there for about um, uh, four, maybe three or four years. And then we decided to leave and try and start a community. Now, my connection with Torah Resource was um, I, I had known about Torah Resource and the teachings um, that, that you guys had, uh, had, had been providing. But once I left this particular community, I really needed some guidance. And so this is when I, I called up um, Tim and Gary. And uh, I would get information from them. And there was uh, a couple of other groups. Um, also, um, I'll add that I, I didn't know anything about Christian denominations. And so at this point, and, and nor did I even really care well, um, while I was at this Messianic community, uh, because I just wanted to, you know, follow Torah. I didn't care about Christianity. But once, but once I came out of um, that community and tried to start a community, I thought, I need some help. I need some some other men around me that I can talk to, and um, I started to uh, to reach out to some pastors in the area, and uh, boy, I found that uh, I really uh, I really do uh, agree with uh, Southern Baptists, and I was leaning more towards you know the Southern Baptist pastors, pastors that I talked to, the Reformed pastors that, that that I talked to, and even started listening to some guys online, um, um, John Piper. Um, John MacArthur, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and, and guys like this, Vody Bauckham. And, uh, boy, I really liked these guys' teachings, and, and uh, I really understood, um, or they made the Bible, you know, re- really make a lot of sense from their perspective. And uh, so we had this community going for from 2009 till uh, 2015 when we, when we moved out here. And uh, I used, in order to start the community, to establish the leadership and uh, the structure of it, we used uh, the, the teaching from Torah Resource called uh, um, I Will Build My Ecclesia. And the, particularly the last chapter, the last teaching in that, uh, in that class was about how to start a community. And there's a whole outline which was great for us. And it really changed and challenged a lot of us. And, and at one point... Um, our community, at the largest our community was, we had about 85 people. And, uh, and I kept warning people that as we go through this teaching, it's going to shake, shake up what we think a church should look like, what a community should look like. You know, we challenged the ideas of, of senior pastors and, and uh, you know, we should have elders, a uh, plurality of leaders and not just one single senior pastor. And we don't see in the Bible that there is a position of a music leader or a dance leader. Or any other positions mm-hmm. in, uh, in in the community, and so that challenged us. And and uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, we had people who got their you know feelings hurt and toes stepped on. And and uh, but wait, wait, uh, wait, are you telling me that there's not a youth pastor position per- preached in the Bible? <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. That's called parents. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and so uh, and so um, I continued to study, and I would use the Torah resource um, teachings. Um, 
to to help me and 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 to guide me because I found that with all of the uh, the, the Christian teachings that 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 I was listening to, um, I mean Torah resources, you know, just just brought all of these things to. Um, in a, from a messianic perspective, and so everything just kind of came together. Now, the other thing, when I would listen to other messianic teachers, what I would find is that a lot of these guys weren't part of communities, mm-hmm. and uh, we never had we never had any uh, any speakers come and speak during the Sabbath. It was always one of the leaders from our community that was teaching on the Sabbath. Now, we did have some guys come during the week. And if folks wanted to come during the week and hear the, the, these teachers, then, then we would do that. But we came up with the um, with the the, uh, the the rule, or you know, that, that these guys had to be in a community. I didn't want anyone coming to teach if they're not in a community, because I mean that's what uh, the tour is given to us for to be in community and to be able to dwell together. And so we only had a handful of teachers that ever ever come. Now, as I started listening to the tour resource, one of the things that I thought was. Okay, these guys are talking about Torah and they're talking about living it, but I want to see this in action. I want to see what it looks like. And you know, are they just saying this or are they actually walking this out? So when a uh, Torah Resource, when Torah Resource Institute first had their had their first um, conference, the Dead, the Dead Sea Scroll conference, boy, I signed up and I brought my whole family out. And uh, one of the families here, the Meeks family, they they put us up and we. Uh, we stayed with them, and we went to the conference. And uh, but I think the the part that really um, had an impact on me and my family was the Sabbath service at Bay Hillel. And we saw how the men from Torah Resource actually apply what they teach at this community, and uh, just the the interaction with the families. Um, and it was it was such a blessing. Um, and en- enough for you to move out here. Well, 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 <laughs> yeah, we had, we had a choice. I mean, eventually, yeah, we came out to the, to the subsequent, subsequent, uh, conferences, the, uh, the family camps. And then, uh, yeah, last year we had a, a situation to where we had to, um, shut down the community and basically, um, move. And we had, a, we had nowhere to go. Uh, I didn't have a job. And so I either had, had had the choice to either move back to Texas to be with my family, which I, hey, I love my family, I love my parents, um, but and then we had the choice to come out here to uh, to join Bay Hillel and and uh, I chose the community over my family because my family um, they don't they're not walking in Torah um, yeah they're on my side of the family they're mostly Catholic my wife's side of the family they're mostly Baptist. Um, and there are some messianic communities down in that area, but I just know it would be difficult for us to be down there with our families. Everything they do is on Saturdays, birthday parties and get togethers. And, uh, you know, with, with, uh, with, with, with the big Mexican families, man, I mean, we, there's a lot of get togethers, there's a lot of birthdays and, uh, and, and stuff. And it would be such a draw for us. Um, and I need, I needed to put my children in a, um, in an environment where they would be taught the Torah be around like-minded believers. Now, also, you know, we got to admit there's no perfect communities. You know, there's no perfect people. But uh, I would rather be around more like-minded people um, because e- eventually your children grow up and your children <laughs> are going to uh, get married, <laughs> you know, and you want to put them in an environment where they can find someone 
that's that's going to be more compatible with with their faith, so they can pass this on from generation to generation because that's what it's all about. Okay, so I got a question then. It's you said that your wife's family is mostly Baptist. Did she when when you guys got married? You were still in Catholicism. Was she? Did she come out of a Baptist faith into Catholicism? Um, well, when when we've been together since tenth grade in in high school, my wife and I, and um, shortly after high school, I think her. Her siblings started to go uh, Baptist, and she stayed Catholic with me. And so it's it's uh, her uh, two sisters and her brother that that, uh, that that are Baptist. Now, actually, one of her sisters, uh, through our influence, um, decided to find a Messianic community, and she has that understanding. But there isn't a community near her, um, and so she's kind of been absorbed back into the family, back into uh, the, the 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 Baptist faith. But um, but she still has that understanding, you know. So she still celebrates. Um, but it's just difficult for her to find um, a place to worship, and that's exactly what I thought would happen to our family if, if we went back there. What about what about your parents? Did your parents have a funeral for you when you left the Catholic Church? <laughs> no, actually, they came out to visit us at at, at the uh, the community that we first started attending in, in Colorado, and they came out a few times and went to the service and they heard the teachings and and they actually said, you know, I. I it sounds it sounds right. They never heard the Bible taught like that either, and so they're actually they're they're happy for us. And and even my mom uh, will usually call on the feast days, like on well the ones that she knows, Passover and Yom Kippur. She'll call and just you know wish me a good Passover, wish me happy a good Yom-, Yom Kippur, Michael. Are you are you eating a lot? Is there a good spread there today? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, on. All right, cool. Well, that gives you a little back. That gives all of our listeners a little background about who Michael is. We might see him pop up more and more around these parts on the Robin Caleb show. So now everybody has a good idea of who Michael is and where he's coming from, which is appropriate for today because we're going to be talking about Sola Scriptura here. And actually, what the Messianic movement thinks about Sola Scriptura uh, is really what we're going to be focusing on. Um, so, but before we get to that, somebody asked me, and you know, uh, as everyone should know by now, we launched right into the show. Things are a little different today because Rob's gone. Uh, but, you know, we have multiple producers of this show. And when I say producers, I mean people who help us run this show. Uh, Gary Springer, Mark Randall, uh, uh, Eric Russell has helped us with music. Michael usually helps us with graphics and all sorts of stuff like that. And he's going to be doing more than that since he just came on to Torah Resource. Anyway, so the point is, is that uh, one of our producers asked us to to talk about something real quick, and that is the Beneos of North American Summit. Now, I know that Ken Rank and uh, Pete Rambo, those guys really have it out for me. Those guys really don't like me. They don't like me because I've uh, come against, uh, you know, Rob and I have talked against one of their teachings that uh, that basically the Jews, the way that I understand what they're saying is that uh, the Orthodox Jews who are keeping Torah, they don't necessarily have Yeshua now, but since they believe in a coming Messiah, and since someday they will, uh, you know, realize that that is Yeshua, essentially they're saved. So I've come out against that teaching, because I think the Bible teaches against that teaching. So, uh, and I've... (laughs) Yesterday, I saw a comment from Ken Rank on a post. He said that I was becoming the Messianic... uh, uh, What did he say? Who's the Howard Stern? The mess. I'm becoming the messianic Howard Stern, which is interesting. Uh, if I could, uh, if if this radio show could bring in that much money, then uh, so be it. But uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, the point is, is that those guys really uh, they have a thing out for me, which is funny because personally, I was watching some of uh, Pete Rambo's stuff. I actually really like Pete Rambo. You know, uh, obviously, I disagree with him 
on uh, on some of his theology, especially you know now Pete Rambo is what I would consider an extreme two houser. So he's you know him and and uh, Ken Rank both they're you know they're they're very much in the Batya Wooten camp and and uh, they've basically p- bought into the two house. Uh, theology hook, line, and sinker. And so obviously we're going to disagree on that. However, I can see why Ken Rank is, is so beloved within that, uh, within that vein of theology. He's very easy to listen to. He, uh, you know, he speaks very well. He just seems like a, you know, I'd love to meet him face to face someday and have lunch with him. He uh, seems like a real sweetheart and just a really nice guy to, t- to uh, listen to and to talk to. So uh, personally, I have nothing against these guys. They certainly seem to have something against me. Which is, you know, that's up to them, whatever. Anyway, so uh, both the, both these guys have talked about what's called the B'nai Yosef North American Summit. So I can I can tell that already they're going to be like, oh, here we go, Caleb Hegg again on on uh, <laughs> on our theology. Well, actually, let's first. I want to I want to read what this was from. Uh, this is called Breaking News, uh, Breaking Israel News. You know, I don't know if this is a legitimate news source or not. Uh, the only articles that I could find outside of what I think is the two house movement was actually from one guy, and that's the guy who wrote this. I don't know. I think this guy is a non-believer, but I could be wrong. Anyway, he writes this. He says, this is from Breaking Israel News. You can find this in your show notes. He says, an entirely unprecedented event is taking place this weekend in Florida. The modest gathering of B'nai Yosef's, that's Sons of Joseph, could signal the beginning of a new relationship between Jews and Christians, transforming a millennium of mistrust into brotherhood and friendship. Um, So, okay, right there. Now, it's great that people are trying to bridge relations, and I know that people within the Messianic and Hebrew Roots movements have been, and the Christian world, right? Um, Bridges for Peace has been going since I was a baby. Um, And there's other other groups that have been trying to bridge the gap between Christianity and Judaism. I think the biggest gap that we're going to have within Christian, and this has nothing to do with B'nai Yosef, uh, North America Summit, and it has nothing to do with uh, Messianic Judaism in general. But just as an overall whole, I think that believers in the Messiah issue are going to have a hard time bridging a gap with the Orthodox Jews. Um, And maybe that's the caveat, Orthodox Jews, um, maybe not so much the Reform, but I think Judaism, in uh, the larger body of Judaism as a whole today, uh, we're going to have a hard time bridging that gap because we have the divide of Yeshua. Yeshua and our belief that Yeshua is divine is that divide. And I think that while it is good to try to bridge gaps between uh, non-believing Judaisms today and uh, believers, whether it's Messianics or Christians today, I think that that's a worthy cause, but I think that it's an uphill battle. So whether or not this North American summit is going to do that or not, hey, more power to them if they can try to bridge some kind of a gap. Anyway, he goes on. The stated goal of the B'nai Yosef North America Summit in Tampa, running from March 4th through the 6th, which just happened, is to focus the efforts of awakening Ephraimites in North America. This is a quote. I'm sorry. Quote. I think this is a quote from them. To, quote, focus the efforts of awakening Ephraimites in North America North America toward a long-expected reunion with, the, with other Ephraimites and with Judah, end quote. Okay, so obviously this is bringing in now two-house theology, uh, the split of Ephraim and Judah, the lost tribes of Ephraim versus the known tribes of Judah, which is now the, uh, the nation of Israel as they see it. Okay, 
Uh, he goes on. The group of the group defines Judah as quote the part of that nation which we know know now as the Jewish people, which retained knowledge of its identity and in 1948 returned to life as the state of Israel. End quote. Ephraimites are the quote non-Jewish Israelites descended spiritually, and I, that's an interesting caveat. Now, once again, I think this guy is I think this guy is an Orthodox Jew. I don't think that he's actually. Um, I could be wrong on that, though. Maybe he's two-house as well. But I, I don't know if he's representing uh, two-house theology because I've never heard it described like this. Ephraimite, Ephraimites, and he's, he puts quote marks in this. Ephraimites are the, quote, non-Jewish Israelites descended spiritually from the northern kingdom of Israel. Interesting. Anyway. Okay, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, yeah, yeah, they 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 put that uh, <clears throat> that caveat in there, um, and also what I was just going to mention is on the side here it says about the author, <clears throat> the city made Aliyah in in ninety one, and he mm-hmm. serves in the IDF. You know, that would that would make me assume that he's an Orthodox Jew, or that he's maybe not Orthodox, uh, but he's he's Jewish, a non believer, but maybe not. Right? Who, who knows? I, we, studied we should... he studied Jewish law and received rabbinical ordination in Israel. So who knows what that means? I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I would assume he's a non-believer, but maybe that's a horrible right, that, assumption to make. Yeah. Okay, anyway, uh, th- just one more paragraph here. Uh, this gentleman goes on. At this summit, they will choose a 12-member council of elders and a seven-member executive committee based on the first century congregation in Jerusalem. Composed of 12 apostles and seven deacons. This summit follows the first B'nai Yosef National Convent, uh, Congress conference held last May, in which over 130 delegates from 12 nations gathered in Ariel, Israel. European Ephraimites held a similar conference in Memmingen, Germany, in January, with a total of 60 representatives from 10 nations, indicating that the movement is slowly gaining momentum around the world. Okay, so... Basically, what else I read about this, I tried to do a little bit of research on this. That the B'nai Yosef uh, North American Summit, they chose this leadership, and then they all signed like these, this declaration of uh, – it's an article of declaration, okay? And it has all these bullet points. You can find this in the show notes as well. And honestly, the bullet points, really what they're doing is they're promoting – I, I don't know. I, I, it sounds to me like they're just trying to bridge a gap between believers and the Jewish people. That is the physical descendants of Jacob. Um, so, I mean, but their articles of faith are, we will submit to the will of God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you know, so on and so forth. Um, there's not like, it's not like blatant, you know, I, I'm not looking at this going like, okay, this is heresy or anything, nothing like that. It's just, you know, it, it looks like something you would, uh, you would sign if you were, uh, if your church was trying to enter a denomination or something, to be honest with you. I mean, that's, that's kind of the way I see it. Anyway, so now Ken Rank, who thinks that I am becoming the uh, Messianic Howard Stern, uh, he says this on his blog. I'll read, I'll read this just because he starts to give kind of a explanation of what was going, of what happened. He says, have you ever stood before a sunset that was so magnificent, so majestic, so vivid that when you attempted to describe it, there were simply no words powerful enough to reproduce what your eyes had beheld. That is exactly how I feel when considering the events of this past weekend. I don't believe my vocabulary contains the needed words to articulate what I uh, what I was so blessed to take part in. The B'nai Yosef North American Summit is a potential game changer. There is simply no better way to state that. 
uh, 200 people, most of which considered themselves to be Ephraimites by and large Christians who identify as part of Israel in the nations, gathered together from all over North America to define an identity and a common purpose. That goal did not fall short. And then he goes on to say, you know, he describes the the entire conference. He talks about the different teachers. Uh, Bacha Wooten was there. She spoke, uh, even though she hasn't spoken in several years, uh, so on and so forth. Okay, so I'm pretty confident that everyone thinks I am now going to take the next however long, uh, you know, 20 minutes to completely uh, obliterate uh, this conference. Actually, I'm not because I don't really see anything wrong with it. I disagree with the idea of two-house theology, and I think everybody knows that. But if two-housers want to get together and say, we're trying to bridge the gap between normative Judaism, whatever that might be, Okay, and if you get a couple of guys from who who are Jewish Orthodox Jews like Hanok, who is there, and and other people like that, you know, uh, Alaro is another guy who uh, claims to be Orthodox Jew but has basically preached a two house message. So if you have these guys who are going to represent Judaism, um, which I think, I mean personally, I don't think that that's a good representation. But if if that's you know if that's your representation of Judaism over here, and then you have people who are going to come together and say, look, we represent believing you know the believing people within the two house movement. We believe we're Ephraim. Let's bridge this gap. Let's all sign this thing that says that we're going to love the Jewish people and that we're trying to restore Israel and Judah and all this kind of stuff. Okay, I, I disagree with the theology of two two house, but at the same time, if that's what you want to do, I don't. I mean. And not only that, everybody says it was a great experience for them. Everybody seems to think that this was just a very, you know, God was there and it was a very blessed time. If that's what you want to do, that's fine. Uh, you know, in the same way, I now, even this, I would find this even more of a legitimate form of, of uh, I don't know, worship or whatever than possibly some of the Pentecostals who are going to be speaking in tongues openly because that's clearly spoken against in in the scriptures. This, although I disagree with two-house theology, these guys haven't come together and done th- something that is blatantly, uh, you know, against Scripture or anything. No, instead they're trying to bridge some kind of a gap. I, to be honest, I mean, I know that the people in the chat room are probably going to slaughter me for this, but I don't really see a big deal with this. If this is what they want to do to, you know, and this is uh, how they feel they're not only connecting to each other, but within their own theology, this is what they feel is going to give some gain, I don't have a problem with it. What do you think? Yeah, you know, and even um, going along with the uh, spiritually, you know, descended comment in that same article, um, this this fellow says, the truth is we have no proof of physical or biological heritage, and there is no hope of tracing our genealogies back to the ten tribes. But that is consistent with prophecies such, such as that by Hosea, which says Ephraim will be assimilated among the nations. And so, you know, they're admitting that they really have no proof um, of, of, their, of their lineage. Um, you know, and, and, and I have heard people say that, you know, this whole Ten Tribes idea is, uh, could be seen as uh, replacement theology. Um, but, yeah, like, like you're saying, if, if these guys are just getting together and, uh, you know, they're praying for Israel, their hope is to uh, restore relationship with, the, with Jewish people, I mean, that's... You know, I, it's it's uh, we're gonna we're gonna find that you know we're gonna find that stuff. We don't have to agree agree with uh, 
uh, this theology. I've got plenty of friends who are, uh, um, you know, they're into the Lost Tribes. Uh, even back in our community, back in Colorado, we had a few different families that were really into um, in, into this understanding, and uh, we were able to fellowship and, and worship together, no problem. Oh, I got I got friends who are two house. There's no doubt about that. They're openly two house, and I, I mean, obviously, I disagree. There's no doubt about it, and. I mean, I'm not trying to be mean here. I don't think that there's going to be any benefit from – now, I know that, that, that Ken Rank and Pete Rambo and, the, and, and all the people who participated in this, I know that they really feel like this is you know, ordained by God or whatever and that this has been some wonderful experience. That's great. I'm not, I'm not fully convinced personally that this is going to do anything for Jewish-Christian relations, um, and maybe that wasn't necessarily their goal, which is fine. I'm just saying that I'm not sure exactly what the overall benefit is about this, except for maybe it has brought these believers, these brothers in the Lord, brothers and sisters in the Lord, closer to each other, which maybe that's maybe that's good and necessary. Um, you know, so the idea that that anyone who you know, and the, I think I've stated this before. The the big problem that I have with two house theology is that it gets rid of the nations. In other words, anyone who believes is you know somehow physically descended from you know, a physical descendant of of Israel. So right. so that's my big problem with with two house theology. But if these guys <clears throat> want to come together and say, hey, you know, we're going to unify and say that we love, you know, we love uh, the Jewish people and we want to try to reconcile somehow how with them, that's fine with me as long as we don't diminish who Yeshua is. In other words, as long as these guys aren't coming together and saying, oh, well, we want to we want to uh, fellowship with the Jewish people. And to do that, we'll kind of waffle on whether or not Yeshua is deity or not, well, which do, it, that's not at all what it seems is going on here. Um, so, I mean, honestly, I don't know. I don't really have, um, I don't really have a huge problem with it if this is, you know, if this is their thing. I don't think that it's necessarily, I don't, I don't see a huge benefit in terms of how it's going to benefit all of the messianic or believing community, but maybe that's not what they're going for. So anyway. I'm sure the conference was a good time. A lot of music and dancing, like, like you see in the pictures in the article. Yeah, Probably well, really yeah, and actually, that's just it. Is that you know, one thing that the two houses seem to do is give a, a good uh, you know, and I've got, I've been to two house conferences before, believe it or not. So, um, <laughs> I, and I've always had a good time uh, with people. They, you know, there are some great brothers and sisters in the Lord who hold to uh, two house theology. Okay, so let's move on. This will tie in more to uh, you coming out of Catholicism. I was online. The other day, and I now I've friended somebody on Facebook. Actually, I started following somebody on Facebook who is part of the quote messianic movement. However, it seems to me, and I don't know this person personally, it seems to me that this person is trying to be more of like Orthodox Jewish messianic and maybe even leaning towards Hasidic messianic jewish and so it was really interesting to kind of see this person's thread uh they posted something that said and i actually posted this same question uh worded a little differently but they posted this on their facebook page they said is sola scriptura dangerous any thoughts now what I realized very quickly is that the friends that this person has within Messianic Judaism is a totally different vein of Messianic believers than what I have as friends on Facebook. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. But then it got me thinking, is this the normative idea within Messianic Judaism? So this person puts this out there as the question. And then I started reading some of the, the comments. So here are some of the comments, and I've got quite a few of them. I don't think it exists. Okay. Uh, and the first thing I would have wondered is, what is your definition of sola scriptura? Uh, are you de- redefining it yourself, or is, are you taking a Protestant view of, of what sola scriptura is, since sola scriptura was formulated formulated by the reformers in terms of this is a, you know, here's the doctrine as we see it. So they're the ones who first put it down as a doctrine. Uh, somebody else says, even those that say sola scriptura don't use it. Their interpretations are their traditions. Whether they know it or not, the biblical, the biblical faith has built in faith tradition, or the oral Torah. Another person says, sola scriptura can be used to justify anything. I'm not sure how, that's, how that would be. Um, in fact, I would think just the opposite. I would think, but okay, let's keep going. This person says, all I will say is sola folks are poisonous. Another person says, and I know this guy. This guy used to go to Beit Hillel. Um, he actually, hang on, I'll skip that one for now because I'm going to go back to him. Uh, anyway, I this another person. Keep in mind these these people. I think all claim to be messianics. Uh, this person says, I don't consider the apostolic writings to be scripture, but you understand. And I think that they're talking to the person who posted. Um, let me see if I can find this specific comment real quick. Here it is. Okay, so this is the person who used to go to be. Well, yes, uh, because solus, he's responding to something, because sola scriptura falls as soon as you try to obey the commands of the Torah. Every, I say every, command of the Torah requires an oral law to define its parameters. For example, the Torah tells us to keep the Sabbath holy, but nowhere does it define how to keep it holy. Torah commands us not to work on the Sabbath, but nowhere does it define what work is. The following paper provides, and then he gives a a paper to uh, this huge uh, article that he's written. Um, Now, I want to respond to this straight away because, um, uh, yes, I think that he's right. The Torah doesn't define how to keep these commands. But I think it's set up like that on purpose. Each, if, If you come to Beit Hillel, the congregation that I'm a part of, you might see that we do things differently than you're used to. We might tie our tzitzit differently than you. We might count the omer differently than you. We might uh, keep the keep the Sabbath differently than you're used to keeping it. And if I go to your community, it might be different. Is there one better than the other? And I think that even within Judaism, that is non-believing Judaism, I think that we see the same thing happening. From one Orthodox community, even within Hasidic Judaism, Hasidic Judaism has about 50 various denominations of Hasidic faith. Each one is different, and each one keeps oral commandments differently. So I think that I think this is a bit of a straw man argument to try to build up the idea that What this basically tries to say, in my opinion, is that what this person is trying to say is that Judaism has one baseline, like one oral tradition. Like if you keep the oral tradition, you do it this way. And that's certainly not the way that Judaism has worked it out. So I think that that's a pretty big straw man argument. Let's go on. This person says it is toxic. Another person says sola scriptura always means 
my baseless personal interpretation. The meaning of the written text at many levels was given to Moshe on, at Sinai and has been brought down via the generations of Jewish people. Anyone who believes in the Messiah and advocates for sola scriptura should seek mental health help. <laughs> Somebody else responds and says, for sure. And then again, we have uh, someone else says, very toxic. That is the reason we have 44,000 denominations. I think that this person grossly misunderstands what sola scriptura is, if that is their, uh, if that is their understanding. Another person says, as early as the, as the year 187, the Christian bishop Arrhenius counted 20 different var- uh, varieties of Christianity. By the year 384, Epiphanius counted 80. I don't understand what that means. Okay, anyway. Um, anyway, okay, so this to show that um, obviously all these different people, and so then you have people like David Nagley, and I bring his name up. You know, I haven't mentioned any names yet because I'm, you know, I'm being a little bit sensitive here since these people aren't putting themselves forward as teachers. David Nagley has a blog. I've put this blog in your show notes. You can look at it. We'll look at a, a piece of this in a few seconds. Actually, let's look at it now because that'll, that'll go well. Okay, so down, if you look at his post, uh, his blog site is Mishkan David. Um, and I'll read this is down just a little bit. He says, now there are numerous resources where one can find discussions and uh, d- dissertations about the significance of this doctrine. He's talking about Sola Scriptura. Let's see how Kenneth R. Samples at Christian Research in- Institute puts it. I have edited the material a bit for brevity. Okay. So now he gives, this is from uh, what I would think is a, the Christian Research Institute is what I would consider a Protestant Christian organization. This is what he says. And uh, I think that actually when he says edited, I think he's just taken out a couple of things. So this is what uh, Kenneth Samples says. He says, Protestant understanding of sola scriptura. Scripture alone is the primary and absolute source for all doctrine and practice, faith and morals. Sola scriptura implies several things. The Bible is a direct revelation from God. As such, it has divine authority for what the Bible says God says. The Bible is sufficient. It is all that is necessary for faith and practice for Protestants. The Bible alone means the Bible only is the final authority for our faith. So I agree with, so far, these two points, I agree. Point three, the scriptures possess final authority. They are the final court of appeal on all doctrinal and moral matters. Only the Bible is infallible. I also agree on that. Point four, the Bible is per uh, perspicuous. I said that wrong. Uh, Anyway, clear. Uh, Yeah, okay. Not meaning that everything in the Bible is perfectly clear, but rather the essential teachings are. The main things are the, the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. This does not mean that Protestants obtain no help from the fathers and early councils. Protestants accept the great theological and Christological pronouncements of the first four ecumenical councils. What is more, most Protestants have high regard for the teachings of the early fathers, though obviously they do not believe they are infallible. So this is not to say there is no usefulness in Christian tradition, but only that it is of secondary importance. Okay, that part right there is important. So this is not to say there is no usefulness in Christian tradition, but only that it is of secondary importance. Now, I would agree with this to, uh, to a, uh, a point. 
I would say that the Protestants are willing to reject, and I think this is what uh, Kenneth uh, Samples is saying here, is that Christians are willing to reject something from a church father if it goes against what the Bible teaches. We see this all the time at the Society of Biblical Literature and also at the Evangelical Theological Society. Uh, And we see this within different denominations as well, because uh, those who believe in... um, and um, dispensationalism would say that, that God has not rejected Israel. And they've basically tried to work out how, how uh, you know, there's not this replacement theology that many of the church fathers had. So obviously they're rejecting things that the church fathers have said before. So it's not necessary. It's just that what I believe uh, Samples is saying here is that we still see uh, benefit in reading the church fathers and what... They have said, as long as is uh, it doesn't go against Scripture, we can accept. Number five, Scripture interprets Scripture. This is known as the analogy of faith principle. When we have difficulty in, in understanding an unclear text of Scripture, we turn to other biblical texts, for the Bible is the best interpreter of the Bible. In the Scriptures, in the scriptures clear text should be used to interpret the unclear ones. Okay, so I agree with all of this. And now back to Negley and what he says. Now, I realize... That's a lot to absorb for those of us who do not live in the world of formal theology. Let's see if we can reduce it to a sentence or two. Basically, the statement is communicating this. This is Nagley's interpretation of those five principles. Scripture, as interpreted by the early Christian leaders, is the ultimate and only source where we can find the revealed divine directives of all matters pertaining to life and godliness. I reject that. I I think he's missed it. I, yeah, I don't see how he came to that conclusion, based on what on what he put there. It, that uh, I don't see that. I think the one that I stopped on and said so. Uh, so this is uh, samples quote again. So this is not to say that there is no usefulness in Christian tradition, but only that it is of secondary importance. This number four here, I think, is what he is interpreting as as interpreted by the early Christian church or the early Christian leaders. Mm-hmm. I don't find that in sola scriptura. No. Anyway, so uh, this is Negley's, uh, you know, and he goes on to, in my opinion, you know, he goes on to basically say that this is not uh, a valid, a valid uh, teaching. Okay, so um, let's see here. Hang on, let me get back to my show notes. Okay, so then this, this is in Messianic times. Now, I'm not saying I advocate, you know, everything or anything specifically in Messianic times. However, Messianic times has tried to put itself out there as the news <laughs> source for Messianic Judaism. In other words, if it's going on in Messianic Judaism, Messianic times is usually the one who's going to, you know, I don't know, represent in some way, shape, or form, whether they agree with it or not. They certainly have an agenda. But this is from Steve Bernstein, um, and I'm sure many people know of Steve Bernstein. This is his article, and I, I took out one chunk of it, So, but it is in your show notes. You can read the entire thing there. It's not much longer than what I have here. He says, many people new to Messianic Judaism come into Messianic Judaism carrying the concept of sola scriptura. That is that one may only read the biblical text and not any interpretations or commentaries along with it. There are several flaws with this idea. That is not what sola scriptura means. I mean, I don't understand why people in the Messianic uh, faith can't do just a modicum amount of research. It does not take very long to look up 
any one of the reformers who's going to speak on sola scriptura and understand what it is. This is clearly not what it is. And then, of course, Messianic Times comes and they uh, they print this. How did Messianic Times not catch this? Yeah, where are their editors? Where are their theological editors that are going going through this and uh, and making sure that everything is going to be accurate in a uh... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's the point. So he goes on. He makes a second point here. I know I'm talking a lot, but, but uh, I got a lot here to get out in terms of what, what I've seen. You know, so I'm, we've talked about, Rob and I have talked about on the show before, we've talked about Sola Scriptura and the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. What we have not done is try to look at what various voices in the Messianic. Now, I realize that this might not be like the overwhelming majority of Messianic Judaism. This might be a very small niche group within Messianic Judaism. However, Jacob Franzak from FFOZ came out and uh, wrote his, you know, wrote wrote his article, which I disagreed with and uh, wrote an article in response to. He put that out in FFOZ's uh, journal. So it seems as though FFOZ, a major contributor uh, to mess- thing, all things Messianic these days, uh, has rejected Sola Scriptura. Beyond that, Messianic Times puts this out. So uh, Bernstein goes on, and uh, this is so he makes one point, which I've, uh, I outright reject because of his uh, horrible scholarship here and his horrible ability to represent what Sola Scriptura actually is. And in my opinion, a a complete misunderstanding of what Sola Scriptura actually is. So in the second point, he says, the second problem with Sola Scriptura originates with the process in which Scripture was given to begin with. The Torah was given to us at Sinai. It was given to us as a nation. It was not given to us as individuals. The judges and prophets spoke to us as a nation. The writings were written to us as a nation, not as individuals. The Gospels were written about Yeshua and the nation. They were not addressed to individuals. It is impossible, therefore, to deal with and interpret scripture from a purely individual point of view in numbers 15 uh, uh, numbers chapter 15 it is clear that we are not to follow after our own eyes and our own heart it is always we or our and it is not i or mine interpretation and understanding of scripture are always collective it is for this reason that Yeshua reminds us in Matthew twenty three two through three. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna respond to this part because uh, I just spoke on this. Um, I just I just spoke on this in in the Philippines. Hang on just a second. I want to see what. Uh, so this is what uh, Mishkan David says. So this is the blog that we were just reading. Somebody posted this in the chat room. Thank you, Gary. The pro- this is a quote from his blog. The problem with the doctrine like Sola Scriptura is that the Bible was never designed to be the sole pattern to an entire religious society. Rather, it is the product of an existing culture and society. Wow. <laughs> Thank you. You took, the, you took the word right out of my mouth. <laughs> Um, okay, so basically, once again, I, I believe that Bernstein here is misrepresenting what Sola Scriptura is with this whole beginning part of of his second point. Um, and once again, if you read people like Luther, if you read people like Calvin, which it seems like these gentlemen have never done, and maybe they haven't because – I mean, maybe they have. I mean, maybe that's unfair, but it seems like they haven't. Uh, and maybe they, maybe if they haven't, it's because they think that there's too much anti-Semitism there. And I'll give them that. There is anti-Semitism amongst a lot of the reformers. Um, however, we can't discount, you know, you can't talk about a, a theological standpoint that was, that was uh, 
formed by a certain group of people without actually interacting with the people who formed it, in my opinion. It doesn't seem to work like that. Okay, so Bernstein goes on, and this is this is the rallying cry for everyone in the Messianic movement who is rejecting uh, Sola Scriptura. It's a misinterpretation of Matthew 23, in my opinion. It is for this reason that Yeshua reminds us, this is, uh, once again, Bernstein, ta- Bernstein talking. It is for this reason that Yeshua reminds us in Matthew 23, 2-3, that they sit in the seat of Moses. He says the Pharisees. And Yeshua says the scribes and the Pharisees sit in the seat of Moses. So he's, he's, uh, that's a fair representation. So you must do what they say. This interpretive power was granted to officials at the suggestion of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law. So he's trying to tie Yeshua's teaching here in Matthew 23 back to Jethro. Mm-hmm. Uh, the difficult, which I would reject, the difficult cases were left up to Moses to interpret. Moses, so, why, so first of all, he's completely reject. He's he's neglected the part in Matthew twenty three where where Yeshua says, "But what they do, don't do," because they tie up heavy burdens and loads, which we can't, we which they aren't even able to lift, right? Right. And I, I mean. Uh, you're, you've taught, I'm sure you've taught on this before, um, but in my opinion, the first part of this, they sit in the seat of Moses. This needs to be, you know, nowhere do we have any of these gentlemen trying to evaluate or tell us what the seat of Moses is and how this contradiction of whatever they say, do, and whatever they do, uh, reject or don't do, there's no tr- trying to uh, work this out. And and this goes along with the whole idea of them trying to say that there was a, a codified uh, a Mishnah, uh, you know, back back in the time of of Yeshua. It's almost like that they had all this stuff codified and passed it along. Because then he says that they passed it, his, Moses passed this power on to Joshua, and then passed it on to the judges and the prophets. And and um, yeah, this is going into the idea that uh, there's one monolithic. Uh, rabbinic judaism and and this was not the case well not only that but it assume, look here there's numerous problems with this idea that that yeshua is advocating for some kind of oral torah within um within matthew 23 first of all yeshua specifically rejects some of what the the pharisees have said in mark in mark 7 right he says uh, uh oh by your traditions you've set aside the the torah of god you've set aside the law of god well, if that if that's the case, I mean, if the Mishnah was around in the first century, and if they were real, if it was really handed down from Moses, and it was really the oral law that we were supposed to keep, why wouldn't why wouldn't the Pharisees respond with, "What are you talking about, man? This is handed down from Moses. This is the right. oral tradition." Yeah, like this is this is on par with Scripture. They didn't do that. They they had nothing to say to him. Actually, on the on the Facebook thread uh, that I originally read, somebody brought up Mark seven. I and. Somebody said, uh, actually, I think I brought up Mark seven, and somebody responded and said, "Well, Mark is a is a it's it's just a, a forgery, you know, it's not really scripture." Oh boy! And so you have people that are that are rejecting these kind of things now. Okay, so um, and of course I said that uh, it was handed down. You know, the, many believe that that I I don't know many Jews that actually believe that the Mishnah was handed down from Moses, but Perkei vote, which is uh, the latest book added to the Mishnah. It uh, says in uh, Perkeo Vote 1-1, it's actually just a Vote 1-1, but anyway, we can get, yeah, it's not a uh, later time. 
It says, quote, Moses received the Torah from Sinai and gave it over to Joshua. Joshua gave it over to the elders, the elders to the prophets, and the prophets gave it over to the men of the great assembly. And this is how Judaism, modern Judaism today, sorry about that, modern Judaism today basically tries to say that the oral Torah was handed down from Moses. And this gives more weight to what they're saying, basically. Um, So, but we hear the same kind of uh, thing amongst the Catholic Church. Right at the Council of Trent, and this also is in your show notes. At the Council of Trent, they say this that is the gospel of old promise through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, promulgated first with his own mouth and then commanded it to be preached by his apostles to every creature as the source at once of all saving truth and rules of conduct. It is also clearly perceived that these truths and rules are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions which we received by the apostles from the mouth of Christ himself or from the apostles themselves, the Holy Ghost dictating, have come down to us, transmitted, as it were, from the hand, from hand to hand. Doesn't that sound? I mean, it pretty much sounds the same, right? It's all yeah. passed down. And this is what I see. I see basically. A, a, now, granted, maybe the maybe the Jews were the ones who said that they had it first, but um, it's this idea of giving the law and power to man. Do you want to jump in here before I go on? No, no. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, okay. So the other problem I have is that within this idea, let's pretend for a few seconds. Now, I know that there are people who are going to say, well, the Mishnah is really the only one. Go ahead. No, no. Go, go ahead. Okay. Finish I, know, your I know that people are going to say that the Mishnah is real. It stops after the Mishnah. But but in, in Matthew 23, if you're really going to take that as oral Torah, it's a customary heiress, which means that any time they sit in the seat of Moses, it's... This happens. It's a customary heiress in the Greek. So you can't say that Yeshua meant that it was going to stop sometime. That's not the way that the Greek is put forward. Thoughts? No. You you were about to say something. I was waiting for it. <laughs> okay, so but... Well, let, let, I, I, was, I was just going to say that, I mean, I understand uh, what the... Well, I, I, I guess I, it's just amazing how they've taken uh, Sola Scriptura... And uh, and just uh, confused it. Yeah, they've twisted it. it. It's yeah, it's it's uh, you know when when we walk in Torah, we're gonna have like these instances that that, that they're bringing up. We're gonna have these situations where we're gonna have to define how we we do these things. And, and and like you mentioned, in our community, we're gonna do things differently than other communities. But also within our families, we're gonna have uh, different ways that uh, that we walk out Torah. You know, our own family has our own. Halakha of how we do things, like on on Shabbat, for for our family, we don't uh, watch uh, secular movies, we don't uh, read secular books, listen to secular music. You know, we we try and focus everything on on Hashem, on His Word, on Yeshua, and uh, and so. But then when we get around other families, um, I have to remind my children because they might, you know, they they tell other other, you know, their friends. Hey, why are you doing that on Shabbat? We're not supposed to do that. So I got to pull my children back and say, "Hey, wait a minute. This is our family halakha. This is this is how we do it. Their family might have a different way of of doing things, and uh, and because th- this is just what we've created within our house based on what we understand the scriptures to say." Yeah, exactly. And not only that, but okay. So, um, this idea that that somehow the rabbis have have uh, a unified idea that Orthodox Judaism today is unified in what the oral Torah is, is absolutely asinine. 
you know, the idea that majority rules when it comes to uh, oral Torah. No, it doesn't. Look at the look at the various uh, the various Hasidic uh, sects of Judaism alone. You know, 50 sects of Hasidic Judaism, all with different Rebbe's, all with different Sadiqs, uh, you know, and all with different halakha. And the same goes for Judaism today. And to think, for these people to think that, that there's one Orthodox Judaism that we can look to as the majority is complete nonsense. It's just not true. And it, then you have the Orthodox that say the Reform aren't, uh, aren't even Jews. You know, yeah, they, exactly. So, <laughs> so it's... Yeah, you're not going to find a one, uh, you know, one size fits all in in Judaism. Yeah, and and not only that, but the, but the idea that Orthodox Judaism is the majority within Judaism is also nonsense. Yeah, yeah. There's there's much bigger sects of of Judaism within Judaism than Orthodox Judaism. It's not the biggest <laughs> one. So um, I uh, now I posted the same thing on my. Facebook page to see what kind of response I got. And I think that there, once again, there's a misunderstanding of what Sola Scriptura actually is. So um, this from, now, this is a good representation of what the Catholics believe, okay? And I actually pulled something from the doctor. And when I say the doctor, I mean Dr. James White. If ever you have a biblical question and you can find some kind of a debate on it with James White, more power to you. Uh, Anyway, let's listen to what the Catholics say. As a Catholic, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've met Bible-believing non-Catholic Christians, or we could say Protestants, who so easily put Catholics on the defensive by challenging them to prove whatever the doctrine is that they're talking about from the Bible. They may say something like, unless you can show me where the Bible says purgatory, I'm not going to believe it. Or show me in the Bible where it says that we should pray to Mary. Or show me in the Bible where it says that the Pope is infallible. For that matter, show me in the Bible where it talks about a pope, and so on and so forth. The problem is that many Catholics find themselves on the defensive needlessly. The problem is also the fact that they don't realize that they are allowing the conversation to go in this direction simply because they are going along with a Protestant principle that the Catholic Church never has taught and certainly doesn't teach today, and that is the notion of sola scriptura, the idea of scripture alone. And more specifically, it's this idea that Scripture is in itself formally sufficient for all matters of Christian doctrine and practice. So the mindset that arose at the time of the Protestant Reformation is that everything must be proven from the Bible. And in fact, if you survey the the major uh, creedal statements of the Protestant Reformers and their uh, disciples in the years immediately after the time of Martin Luther, you'll find that it specifically says in these creedal statements uh, that are produced by the Protestant bodies at that time, that unless something can be proven from the Bible, it should not be accepted. This, of course, is really a very important thing for a Catholic to know because, number one, the Bible nowhere makes this claim. The Bible nowhere says that anything must be proven from the Bible. And think about this for a minute. In order for that claim to be, to be rationally coherent, itself, that, that claim, must be found in the Bible. In other words, for somebody to say, I only go by those teachings that are found taught in the pages of the Bible, in order for that claim to be coherent and consistent, that claim itself must be demonstrable in the pages of Scripture, and it's not. Okay, so this is all from a gentleman named Patrick Madrid. He is a Catholic apologist, and he has a debate against James White 
on the internet. I would, uh, if you want to learn more about um, about this debate in terms of sola scriptura, a Catholic view versus a Protestant view, this is an excellent excellent debate to watch. It is quite long. Um, and someone in the chat room has brought up that that there are messianics who or uh, I'm sorry, not uh, Christians, just Christians who have rejected whole passages of scriptures or even whole books. And we see this going on in the messianic movement. For instance, uh, uh, and I've brought this up numerous times, but Monty Judah continues to, uh, to reject the entire book of Hebrews because he has not figured out how some of the language works, which once again, this is his problem, not the book's problem. And I just taught four uh, lectures in, uh, in Manila, Philippines on the, the inerrancy of the 66 books of the Bible and how we received, how we got the canon, how, how it was formulated, and how we know that it's God-breathed and that it wasn't just a couple of drunk guys at a bar one day who decided to p- put together the New Testament. No, rather, it was God-ordained to do so and, uh, and, and so on and so forth. Okay, so let's listen to James White and his response uh, to, to uh, Patrick Negley about the idea that uh, that sola scriptura would have to be found within the pages of the Bible for it to be a true doctrine according to sola scriptura. Let's listen to what James White has to say. Now, the doctrine of sola scriptura is based upon the inspiration of Scripture. Our primary passage this evening, I hope you have your Bibles with you, will be found in Paul's second letter to Timothy. The gentlemen from Catholic Answers have made it a practice for years to assert that Protestants cannot provide a single verse that teaches sola scriptura. Yet they are quite mistaken in this, though they have been corrected a number of times in the past, and let us examine the passage to see if this is the case. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for training in righteousness, in order that the man of God might be complete, fully equipped for every good work. We begin by knowing that scripture is theanustas, God breathed. The term is very strong. I refer anyone who wishes a full discussion of this term to B.B. Warfield's excellent treatment of it. That which is Theonustos has ultimate authority, for there can be no higher authority than God's very speaking. All scripture is God breathed. It is common for Roman Catholic apologists to follow an error made by John Henry Cardinal Newman with reference to this passage. Indeed, Carl Keating, Patrick's associate to Catholic Answers, makes the same mistake in his book, Catholicism and Fundamentalism, and he repeated it again only recently during debate on this subject in Denver during the papal visit. Newman said that if this verse proves the sufficiency of Scripture, it proves too much. For Paul is talking here only about the Old Testament, which would leave the New Testament as an unnecessary addition. But such is not Paul's point at all. Scripture, Paul's point is, if it is Scripture at all, is God-breathed. Paul is not speaking about the extent of the canon, but the nature of Scripture itself as originating in God. All Scripture then, including the New Testament, is God-breathed. And so good on you for, uh, for, for uh, man, Dr. White, just a dynamite scholar in my opinion. I love listening to him. Um, and uh, he's absolutely right. So I, now I think that most Christians actually assume that what Paul is talking about is the, the apostolic scriptures alone. That is the New Testament alone. Right. Which I think is also obviously wrong. Paul is talking about, and I think in his mind what Paul is talking about is, is in fact the Tanakh, that all scripture is profitable. However, 
Dr. White is absolutely right. Paul uses this idea of God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed. And the Greek is very clear here. And so, uh, you know, to me, uh, Dr. White's point here is well taken. The the apostolic scriptures also fall into this category since they are, in fact, God-breathed. And this is how we, this is a perfect example. Now, Dr. White goes on to show other examples within Scripture, and uh, I didn't actually put my uh, article against uh, FFOZ's article by Jacob Franzak on Sola Scriptura. I didn't put that into the show notes. Perhaps I should have. You can find it on TorahResource.com underneath the English articles. I believe it's maybe the third or fourth uh, article down on Sola Scriptura. Anyway, I give scriptural reference as well. Uh, for when I think that the scriptures put forward the idea of sola scriptura. So uh, there are multiple references within the the Bible itself to this idea of sola scriptura. Um, Okay. Do you want to jump in here before I go on? No, let's go on. Okay. So I I know I've been talking a lot, and I guess I've been talking a lot because I've somewhat prepared for this because I've, I've been looking at these Facebook threads. Um, but so I put this uh, same question on my Facebook thread and asked uh, and asked basically, do you believe that Sola Scriptura is a good and true doctrine or a dangerous doctrine? So I gave people both choices instead of putting it only in a negative. And of course, Rob Roy from Messianic Publications is the first person to jump in. He quotes from uh, from Michael Kruger. Michael Kruger wrote for uh, the John McCarthy's website. This is what he has to say. Like many core Christian convictions, this is a quote, by the way, like many core Christian convictions, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura has often been misunderstood and misapplied. I completely agree with that. Unfortunately, some have used Sola Scriptura as a justification for a me, God, and the Bible type of individualism, where the church bears no real authority and the history of the church is not considered when interpreting and applying Scripture. Thus, many churches today are almost... Uh, historical, ah-historical, cut off entirely from the rich traditions, creeds, and confessions of the church. They misunderstand Sola Scriptura to mean that the Bible is the only authority rather than understanding it to mean that the Bible is the only infallible authority. This is an extremely important point right here. The only infallible authority, even within, and I'm going to stop here, even the Bible itself sets up other authority within the the body of a believer, okay? Uh, Paul talks in numerous books, in different books about the authority structure of elders, of deacons, of husbands, of wives, of, you know, within the home. So authority structure within the home, authority structure within community. Okay. The Bible does not negate the idea that there's authority structure and that we have to adhere to authority. So this idea that we can't listen to anybody, any outside authority is totally wrong. In fact, if somebody wants to within their community uh, be held to uh, the authority of some rabbinic traditions and the community agrees on that, if you come into that authority and you know what they're saying, as long as it doesn't go against scripture, you should uh, adhere to that authority. Now, if somebody tells you this is the Bible and you have to do it this way, no. No, 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 no. That's the point of Sola Scriptura. There is a final authority. That final authority is the scriptures themselves. However, we have, a, we have authority structure within community and within the, in the home itself. And I think even um, in, in, in communities, well, we, you can see that played out in communities where, um, you know, one of the biggest issues that we came across was the issue of the calendar. Yeah. And how are we going to establish a calendar, namely uh, with the uh, reckoning 
first fruits, um, Yom HaBikurim, uh, which leads us to Shavuot. Yeah. And so that was one of the things that we had to, as a community, decide how we're going to establish that and how we're going to celebrate that as, uh, as a community of faith. And there's some folks who still believed in a, in a different reckoning, and they did their own thing uh, with, their, with their own family, but they still joined us as a community. And so, yeah, we're all going to have those uh, areas that we have to define, um, you know, uh, some of these things that would be considered traditions. Uh, we had, and quick story, we had a, a lady in our community who, who said that we were adopting too many Jewish traditions, and she wanted the community to be void of all tradition altogether, no traditions at all. And so I asked her, I said, okay, what, then what do you think the service, the Shabbat service should look like? She says, well, we all, we come in together, we pray together, we sing some songs, we, uh, we read a, a Bible passage, and then we, uh, we talk about it, and then uh, after we talk about it, then we will have lunch together. And I said, okay, so is this something that you see done every Saturday? She goes, yes, every Saturday, that's the pattern that, that we take. <laughs> so that's and your so tradition. I said, yeah, so that's so what I told her. I said, you just established a tradition. Um, it, by by setting up something that we do on a regular basis, and so 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 anyway, it's it's uh, th- th- that's a that's a really great uh, uh, line there. It's the only in the Bible is the only infallible authority. That's right. He goes on and says, ironically, such an individualistic approach actually undercuts the very doctrine of Sola Scriptura it is intended to protect. By emphasizing the autonomy of the individual believer, one is left with only private, subjective conclusions about what Scripture means. It is not so much the authority of Scripture that is prized as the authority of the individual. The Reformers would not have recognized such a distortion as their doctrine of Sola Scriptura. On the contrary, they were quite keen to rely on the Church Fathers, such councils, and the creeds and confessions of the Church. Such historical rootedness was viewed not only as a means for maintaining orthodoxy, but also as a means for maintaining humility. Contrary to popular perception, the Reformers did not view themselves as coming up with something new. Rather, they understood themselves to be recovering something very old, something that the Church had originally believed, but later twisted and distorted. The Reformers were not innovators, but were excavators. And this is interesting because um, the, the... Catholics will often, well, not just Catholics, uh, people in general will often bring up the fact that Martin Luther uh, was uh, rejected the uh, rejected the book of James out of his canon. Okay, yes, he rejected it, but he also uh, accepted the authority of that he thought was the authority, which was the Catholic Church at the time, that James was a true book. And so where do we find it? We find it in his German Bible. He still put it in there. Why did he do that? Because he he accepted the uh, the the authority of the church at the time. You have others, uh, other reformers, uh, who would not leave the church, who c- continued to, t- to call themselves uh, uh, bishops and whatnot within the Catholic Church. Why? Because they felt like there was some kind of authority there. Okay, and so then uh, from John MacArthur himself, I have this. Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation is spirit in, in spirit. Uh, I'm sorry. Sola Scriptura simply means that all truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. It is not a claim that all truth of every kind is found in Scripture. The most ardent defender of Sola Scriptura will concede, for example, that Scripture has little or nothing to say about DNA structures. 
microbiology, the rules of Chinese grammar, or rocket science. This or that scientific truth, for example, may or may not be actually true, whether or not it can be supported by Scripture. But Scripture is a more sure word, standing above all other truth in its authority and certainty. This is exactly the point. That's an end quote, by the way. This is exactly the point that needs to be made. Within both of these Facebook threads, my Facebook thread and this other person's Facebook thread, I feel like there's a lot of people who have misrepresented what Sola Scriptura is. When we looked at at Bernstein and Negley, both these gentlemen instantly take a wrong view of what Sola Scriptura is. Even though uh, Negley, he reads what <laughs> what someone puts down as a what I would consider a valid view of Sola Scriptura, and then he twist, instantly twists it into his own view of Sola Scriptura. So whether or not you believe Sola Scriptura is a true and right doctrine or not, I believe it is. I think that there's no other way to uh, be able to live out faith without having the Bible as our final authority. Um, However, even if you reject it, please, please, please don't misrepresent it. Understand what what the doctrine of Sola Scriptura actually is, because it seems like that's where we're having a lot of the confusion. Okay. And I think uh, I mentioned mentioned this to you the past couple of days. It seems like a lot of the arguments that people have with uh, this this show – and uh, you know, many comments that are made is because of a lack of understanding. And uh, and you know, I'm not saying that you know people are are stupid, but but they just don't have the understanding of of what uh, some of these concepts are, what some of these principles are. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, I I will say this. I want to give credence to the uh, to the chat room. Uh, there's someone in the chat room that I haven't that I'm not sure who they are, but they have gone back for some reason to our discussion about um, two house. Um, so yeah, you know we could certainly discuss the tenets of two house theology. Bacha Wooten, I believe, is quite clear in her book, uh, and we could bring that up. However, I think that that discussion is probably for another time. Um, the physical descendants of, of, and I mean, this person is writing a book in here. Um, the, 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 the view that I see uh, that Batya Wooten has uh, put forward in her book is that those who have a, an affinity towards Torah and keeping Torah is, in fact, some, for, some physical descendant of one of the lost tribes of Israel. And in the end time, they will come back. This comes from British Israelism, um, and I think that this is how two-house theology has been formed. Now, whether or not—now, I will be the first to say I have not uh, dived into people like Pete Rambo and people like uh, uh, Ken Rank's uh, personal views on two-house theology. However, uh, the the language that they use and the people that they associate with, like Bach Wooten, seems to imply that they would—and I'm I'm willing to be uh, corrected on this— but it seems to imply that they would agree with said theology of the of British Israelitism and of of people like Bacha Wooten who have written books uh, on on this subject. Okay, anything else uh, at all, Michael, on any subject uh, that we have brought up or not brought up today? Well, that um, what you just mentioned about you know if people have an, uh, they feel their heart going towards Torah, that means that they're actually one of the lost tribes. Uh, funny story, when we started walking in Torah uh, at the, this first Messianic community we were a part of, I remember this lady runs up to us and says, you're Moranos, you're Moranos. And my, you know, my Spanish is very limited, but I know what a Morano is. And she was, <laughs> she was saying, we're, you know, we're, we're pigs. And I didn't understand what that was. And so I'm asking my wife, 
who's fluent in Spanish, I said, uh, you know, is she is she actually saying pigs? And uh, so I didn't know what that meant. And then, uh, you know, she explained to us that we are, uh, she says, because we are Hispanic, because we're Mexican, and we, our heart is, uh, you know, uh, towards the Torah now, that we're actually these Sephardic Jews, these uh, unassumed, these coerced Jews from, from Spain. Um, but, I mean, just because your heart is going towards the Torah, I mean... It's just, it's just, it's God moving. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have any kind of heritage. We don't have any any Jewish heritage, uh, neither my wife or I. Uh, we just uh, want to walk in God's ways because that's what He's commanded us to do. And not only that, but we see in we see in uh, in Zechariah. And no, I'm I'm sorry. I was not trying to put the person down in the chat room who brought this back up. Uh, it's just that now we're going. All I was saying is that we're going back. I was trying to show that we were going back to the original subject or one of the original subjects that we had brought up. So I'm not putting anyone down in the chat room for bringing up old subjects. In fact, two shows ago, I think it was, the chat room was talking about something completely different the entire show. They they didn't they were totally off in a totally different realm. Anyway, um, so in Zechariah twelve, what we see is uh, I'm sorry, Zechariah fourteen rather. Uh, what we see is we see all the nations coming up together to go and worship it, uh, for Sukkot. Uh, and so uh, I'm not saying that uh, you know once again I haven't immersed myself into the various teachings within the two house movement. I know that there are a lot of mainstream teachers now who are in the two, quote unquote two house movement um, that claim not to be two house. The people like uh, you know Rico Cortez, uh, he he uh, has uh, some two house, at least some two house leanings. He ta- and I've I have I could bring up specific instances in his teachings uh, of such. Uh, we have other teachers uh, who seem to lean to house. You know, 119 Ministries seems to lean to house. Uh, even Passion for Truth Ministries has uh, teachings that I would consider very two house. They claim not to be two house. Okay, so what does that mean? It might mean, it might mean, <clears throat> excuse me, it might mean that they have actually taken this idea that this person in this article has written, uh, saying that in fact, it, you know, uh, the those who believe they are. Ephraim are actually spiritual descendants of of Israel. Now, I haven't heard that teaching before, but that might be some kind of, a, you know, that might be something that is being integrated into the, the mainstream two-house movement today. Uh, I believe in enlargement theology as opposed to replacement theology or even two-house theology. Enlargement theology would be that and I believe Paul teaches this specifically in Romans, that those who attach themselves to the Messiah Yeshua are, in fact, part of Israel. They're grafted into Israel. That does not replace the Jewish people, the physical descendants of, of, of uh, Jacob, as Israel. Rather, it enlarges the body of God's people of Israel. It doesn't make a person Jewish either. It doesn't, you know, you can't become Jewish in my opinion. Um, anyway. So, uh, and I mean, that's a show we certainly could do. We could do an entire show. We could probably do an entire month of shows <laughs> on uh, the two-house theology. But I think our time is about up. We went much longer than I thought we were going to today. And so, um, yeah, I'm happy you were around, Mike. It's always good to have you on. Yeah, any, any, any time. I enjoy it. All right. If you have... Uh, any uh, questions, any comments, if you'd like to tell us that we are horrible people and that all we do is tear the body of Messiah down, you can write us, chag at torresource.com. 
That's chag at tourresource.com. Uh, you can also leave comments on our Facebook page. Uh, that is the Robin Caleb Show Facebook page. Uh, and yeah, uh, I hope that uh, our discussion of Sola Scriptura has maybe uh, enlightened people to what Sola Scriptura actually is. Uh, that's my hope. However, if it hasn't, I would encourage you to please go and do some research for yourself on what the Reformers put down as the doctrine of Sola Scriptura. I believe it is a biblical doctrine, and you can read my paper on TorResource.com. And I believe it's a doctrine given to us by our great God and Savior, Yeshua, the Messiah.